Please turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 16 through 18 this morning. Okay, Malachi chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. There the word of Christ says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and Lord, we pray that just as it did in Malachi's generation, Lord, amongst some people, Lord, not all people, for not all heeded the words of the prophet, but there were those who feared you, Lord, who esteemed your name, and they were the ones who repented of their sins, who turned away from them, and who served the true and living God. Lord, we want to be accounted with those people. Lord, we want to be those who repent of our sins, Lord, who have true faith, who live a godly life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us, Lord, these blessings. Lord, the blessings of repentance. Lord, the comfort and the peace of knowing that we belong to you and that we have salvation and that you will spare us and that you will separate us with the righteous on the day of judgment. Lord, these are the things that we need and desire more than anything else. Lord, not only for our own life, but also, Lord, for our children, for our friends, for our family. So, Lord, we pray that you grant to us repentance for the forgiveness of sins in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are nearing the end of the book of Malachi. And thus far, the prophet has been exposing the many and various sins that were prevalent in the people of Israel. And in this, he's not skirted around the issues, but has dealt blow after blow to the people, because when sin exists in the people in such a magnitude, then that sin must be confronted in all of its hideousness. Right? And when this happens, it's, it's not easy. Right? It's not easy for the preacher to have to speak against sin, because he knows there are many people who will gnash their teeth against this message when he's pronouncing God's judgment against their sins. If we turn to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 2, this is what God foretold the prophet Ezekiel that would happen to him in the midst of his ministry. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 1. Here, when the Lord commissioned Ezekiel, he says this, It says, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit with scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Here he says that these people are like briars and thorns like scorpions. And these are the kinds of people you're going to be amongst, yet you still are going to have to proclaim my word to them even when they say things about you, even when they give you dirty looks, right? Even when they persecute you and they want to kill you, you still have to do these things. So it's not easy for the messenger to get up and to declare these things to the people, whether publicly, privately, in whatever way that comes. Also, it's typically not easy for the hearer either, right? It's not enjoyable to hear God's words of judgment pronounced against you, to have your sin exposed, to be wounded in such a way. 
This is why the false prophets love to preach soothing, flattering, smooth words to the people. Because those are words that the people like. They're easy words. They're not hard. And they know they go down nice and smooth and easy because they're not confronting their sin. Yet the Bible teaches us against this. In Proverbs 27, verse 5. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Here, the rebuke is called a wound. It's called a wound, which no wound is pleasurable. It's not enjoyable in the moment, right? It's painful in the moment, just as it is with discipline. No discipline is enjoyable when we're enduring it, yet afterwards, when that discipline reproves us, when it trains us in righteousness, the result of that discipline is pleasant and sweet. And in this way, God's word is both bitter and it is sweet. It is bitter when we hear God's words of judgment against our, our sin. But it is sweet when we see the remedy for our sin and we find ourselves being comforted by the Lord on the basis of repentance. Right, the wages of sin is death. Those are hard, bitter words. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are sweet and comforting words. And we need to hear both of them. All mankind needs to hear both kinds of words. Both unbelievers and believers need to hear the bitter words of the Bible, God's words of judgment against sin, and they need to hear the sweet words of the Bible, God's promises of salvation for those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. But we must remember, the sweetness of salvation must come through the bitterness of God's judgment against our sin. We cannot arrive at salvation. We cannot have the comforts of salvation without first having our sin exposed and enduring the discipline of the Lord. One must hear, one must receive, one must believe God's harsh words of judgment against his sin before he can know and experience and take comfort in God's words of comfort and salvation for those who repent. And this is the pattern that we see in the book of Malachi. Up to this point, Malachi has proclaimed many bitter, harsh words of judgment. Now, when I say bitter, I don't mean evil. I mean they are true words, but they are hard because he is speaking against their sin. These are the hard words of judgment, and he has exposed the sins of the nation in all of its hideousness. From this point forward, we see the blessing, the blessing that comes not for all of the people, right? Because not everyone who heard Malachi listened to him, but some of the people. The blessings that come upon those who humble themselves and repent of their sins. Do we want the blessing, right? Do we want the blessing of God? We want God to write our name in a book of remembrance. Isn't that a good thing? Do we want God to say that we belong to him on the day of judgment? Do we want him to take us as his treasured possession? Do we want God to spare us as a man spares his own son? Do we want God to separate us with the sheep? Or do we want God to put us with the goats on the day of judgment? We all want to be with the sheep, don't we? Don't we want that blessing? Well, this blessing comes through the faithful preaching against sin. This is how it is produced in those who feared the Lord. And without the preaching against sin, the blessing of repentance will never be realized in any person. For it is not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9, 12 to 13. But no one believes they're a sinner. This is why we have to preach against sin to convince them of that, to show them their sickness so that they will then go to the good and great physician who can heal them of all their diseases. So let's turn to Malachi chapter 3 and we'll begin this passage this week in verse 16. Notice there, Malachi 3:16. it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
There it says that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Here we see that the preaching of the word of God is not futile. It always produces the good fruit of repentance in the faithful, right? In those who fear the Lord. Though Malachi preached to many people, right? He's addressing the entire nation of them. Not all of them repented, but there are some, those who fear the Lord, who repented while there are others who rejected the word of God. For we know that there are many who are called, but there are few who are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14. Malachi called many people. He called the whole nation of them to repent of their sin. But only those who were chosen by God, only those who were awakened by the Spirit of God, repented at the preaching of Malachi. Many people rejected his words, but there were some who received them, some who believed them, some who repented of their sins. And this is the way it will always be. In every generation, there is a remnant chosen by grace. They are the ones who fear God, and they are the ones who will heed the warnings of Scripture. While most people could care less, most people are uninterested, or if they hear it, they don't let it sink in, yet there will always be a few in every generation chosen by God who are saved out of the fire. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9 Verse 27, Romans chapter 9, verse 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So if God doesn't leave offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though the number of them, he says, are like the sands of the sea, yet there's only a very small group of them within that number who will be saved. And this is the remnant that is chosen by God. Also, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Romans 11, verse 1. says, I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in the days of Elijah. It's true in the days of Malachi. The apostle Paul is quoting it in his own day as well. And it will be true in ours too. There is a remnant chosen by the Lord. They are those who fear the Lord. And these are the ones who spoke to one another, exhorting each other to repent of their sins. Right? We must see and understand these things. Not everyone who hears the word of God is going to believe the word of God. Even when you have a holy prophet of God, like Malachi, as the preacher. Not everyone listened to the words of Malachi, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his earthly ministry, even when he was preaching the gospel, when the gracious words were coming from his lips, not everyone believed him, but only a few. Look at Matthew chapter 13. This explains why this is the case. Matthew chapter 13. For the word to produce good fruit... It has to fall upon good soil. But not everyone is good soil. Only those to whom it is given. And it's not given to everybody. Matthew chapter 13 verse 1. says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, 
Some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is why the word of God, though scattered far and wide, right? this is what Malachi did in his own ministry, but it must land upon the good soil in order for it to produce the good fruit of repentance. And this explains why only some of Malachi's audience responded positively to his message. Why it was that there were so many who heard his words, but they did not listen. Because they are like those that it was sown amongst the path, or on the rocks, or on the thorns. But there were some that were good soil, those who fear the Lord. And when they heard the word of the Lord, Right, And it's not one message for them and another message for a different group. It's not that they caught Malachi on a good day when he was really clear thinking and really clear in what he was saying and the other ones caught him after a bad night of sleep. That wasn't the case at all. They all are hearing the exact same message, but in one it produces nothing and in the other one it produces a harvest of righteousness. And this is the way it always is with the preaching of the word of God. For one, it is a fragrance of life that leads to life. And to the other one, it is a fragrance of death that leads to death. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Right? Which that's everybody. Those being saved and those perishing encompasses every person on the face of the earth. You're either being saved or you are perishing. And he says we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst all of these people. Then he says to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Now, no one believes this today. At least they don't practice it. This isn't being practiced in the churches today. Because most people believe through their own programs, through their own wit and charm and humor, that they can get everyone to have a favorable response to the Word of God. 
But that's not what the Holy Apostle says. He says it's going to be one or the other, depending on whether they're being saved or whether or not they are perishing. Right? To the one. Right? To the seed sown by Malachi on the bad soil, on the path, on the rocky ground, on the thorny ground, that word became a fragrance from death to death. It proved that they're a dead person, and it will lead to more death, more condemnation for them on the day of judgment. But to the other one, the seed sown by Malachi that landed on the good soil, those who fear the Lord, it is a fragrance of life to life, from life to life. It produces life in them now, and it continues to produce life in them throughout this life and eternal life in the life to come. This is the twofold ministry of the Word of Christ. The preaching of the Word of God always produces either one of these two outcomes. It either leads to life to life or death to death. And in this way, God's word never returns to him empty. It never returns to him void. It always accomplishes his will upon the earth. God's will, God's word is never proclaimed in vain. It always is successful in what God intended for it to do. Because God's intention is not to save every single person, but to save some people and to condemn others. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, if God's word is always preached and what God wants when it's preached is that every single person who hears it to believe it, then Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 cannot be true because we know not everyone believes the word of God. This can only be true if we take it with 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven... And do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He says it will not return to God empty. It will succeed in what God sent it to do. Well, in Malachi's day, not everyone believed, only those who feared the Lord. So was the seed wasted that fell upon the path, the rocky ground, and the thorny ground? And the answer is no, because it always accomplishes God's will. So even though only some believed Malachi's preaching, it does not mean that he labored in vain, for God's word will be accomplished on the earth. Now also we must ask, how is it that there are some who came to fear the Lord? How did this come about? When the Bible teaches us that no one fears God in their natural state. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that this is universally true of all people, that there is no fear of God in men, in sinful men, in their natural state, in the state in which we all enter into the world. Yet here... We're said that there are those who fear God. So how did this come about? Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is being said universally of Jews and Gentiles, all men. No fear of God before their eyes in the natural state. Yet here in Malachi chapter 3, some of the people are described as those who fear the Lord. So where did this come from? How does this come about? And it takes the miracle of God. This is the miracle of regeneration that must be performed by the Holy Spirit of God in a man before he can believe the gospel and before he can repent of sin. He cannot fear God on his own. Only the Spirit of God can produce this in the heart of of man. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, John chapter 6 
in verse 60. John 6, 60 says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. It's only the Spirit of God that can produce the fear of the Lord in a man. And that's why ultimately these people believe, these people repent, these people fear God and spoke to one another while the rest of them did not. Now, all of them have the responsibility. All of them are commanded, right? They're going to be held accountable for not repenting. But ultimately, the credit, the work, is a work of God that he must perform in the heart of man. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Now, speaking of responsibility, for us, are we not in the exact same position as Malachi's audience? Haven't we heard the words of Malachi? Haven't we been reading through this book for the last couple of months? We've been teaching through this book. We've almost covered the entire book of Malachi. And these words are not merely the words of Malachi, but these are the actual words of the Lord. Remember what it says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. When he gives the description of the book, that this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It is the word of the Lord given to Israel by Malachi. And whenever God's word is proclaimed to any people, to us, we have a responsibility, we have a duty, an obligation to obey the word of God. Just as it was in Malachi's day, so it is in our own. They heard the word, we have heard the word. Some of them believed, but others rejected. Which group are we going to fall into? Will we believe the words of God, or will we reject the words of God? Will we receive the blessing that comes upon those who fear the Lord, or will we receive the punishment that comes upon those who are stubborn, who had a forehead of brass, who are stiff-necked, and who always resist the Spirit of God? What do we want to be true of us? Do we want Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 where it says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Do we want God? Do we want Christ? to be a swift witness against us because we heard his word, but we did not listen to his word because we did not fear his word and we did not obey what he said. Or do we want Malachi chapter 3, verse 17 to be true of us? They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son. Which one do we want? Well, hopefully we want the second of those two. But if we want the second, then what must we do? We have to believe and we have to repent. We have the word of God among us. And when the word of God is among us, we must be united by faith with those who believe. And if we're not, the blessings that are promised there will not come upon us, but rather we will have the curses of God poured out in our judgment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. There it is. The good news came to us just as it did to them. 
The words of Malachi have come to us just as it did to his own generation. But the word that they heard did not benefit all of them because they were not united with faith with those who believe. Well, the good news won't benefit us either if we're not united by faith with those who believe. It's not enough that we hear the word of God. We must believe it. We must obey it for our eternal salvation. The word of the Lord is profitable to us only if we believe it, if we are united by faith with those who believe. We must be as they were, those who fear the Lord. This is how their faith is expressed in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Those who believe are those who fear the Lord, which is another way of talking about a believer, a repentant man, a true child of God is a God-fearer. We must fear the Lord. They believed God's word of judgment that was coming upon the ungodly. This is why they turned away from their sins. They turned away from the sins that were common amongst the people, and they said, we're going to serve the Lord even if everyone else doesn't. This is as Joshua says, as for me and my house, he says, we're going to serve the Lord. Though many continued in their sin, the obstinate and rebellious, those who feared the Lord rejected the sins of the nation and they returned to the pathway of righteousness. Also notice here in Malachi 3.16, it says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They spoke to each other. Now, what are they speaking to each other about? The weather? Are they talking about politics? Are they talking about uh, football or uh, hobbies or the latest, greatest book that they just read? Of course not. They're speaking to each other about what the prophet has told them, about what they've heard from the word of God. They're talking to one another about sin, about repentance, about righteousness, right? about judgment, encouraging one another to truly repent of sin and to live a godly and a righteous life. And this is the way it has to be among us as well. right? When God's word comes to a man, it is not enough that he believes that he repents, but he should seek to unite as many people as possible with him in this venture, a joint venture of the faithful. Our deeds of repentance should be extended to our brothers, right? To those who are like-minded. The repentant man unites himself with other repentant men, affirming the truthfulness of God's words of judgment Right? And confirming all of these things are true and good and right, and that we should not take these things lightly, but we should do them. And will this be an encouragement to the faithful? When the majority reject the word of God, to have some others with you, two or three others with you, a group with you saying, no, we're going to reject the sins of the nation. We're not going to be like these godless, unbelieving people. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do what's right. So let's serve the Lord together. Isn't it easier to do that when you're with a group of people than it is to do it by yourself? Right? We shouldn't follow a multitude in doing evil, but it also is good for us to be with a multitude in doing good. Right? Because it's easier for us to do. Because we have brothers there who are able to help us, who are able to lift us up and strengthen us in our way. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And this is what they know, and this is what they're doing. They're speaking to one another. Right? The majority of people are saying what was said in verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Or 14 and 15. You have said... It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord? And we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Is that going to be a help to us in our Christian life? To have people saying to us, it's vain to serve God? Is it going to be a help to us to say, evildoers prosper, they put God to the test, and they escape. There's no point in serving God, right? None of these things are good. Actually, God prefers the wicked, so we should live godless lives. That's not going to be a help to us. That's going to be a great hindrance to us. We need people speaking to us against these lies, telling us it's not vain to serve God. God will forgive us if we repent. There is an eternal crown of glory that await those who long for His coming. So we need to be united with the faithful. 
with the righteous, with the remnant, to serve the Lord and reject the sins of the nation. And we need to be talking to one another about these things. This is why it's good for us to be together, to meet together, to encourage one another. We have to speak to one another about the things of God in order to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Notice what it says in Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6 in verse 1. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, then he may heal us. He has struck us down, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Look, this is what the righteous are doing. They're saying to one another, let's return to the Lord. Right, let's do this. He's torn us, but he's going to heal us. He struck us down, right? He struck us down in our sin. But if we go back to him, if we return to him, he's going to bind us up. He's going to revive us. After two or three days, we're going to live before him. Let's press on to know the Lord. Don't we need that in our life? Don't we need to be doing this for one another? This is the ministry that we need to be performing to one another. There should be the public ministry of the word, but there should also be the private ministry of the word, the congregational ministry of the word, where the people in the congregation are talking to one another about the things of God and encouraging one another to love and good deeds. But for us to do this, we have to be with one another. And when we're together, we have to be talking about the things of God. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is what we need to be doing with one another. As they did, we need to do. Speak to each other about the things of God. Encourage one another to love and good deeds, to the good deeds of repentance and godly living. Now, why is all of this so important? What is the promise that God grants to those who repent of their sins, who return to the Lord? Notice what it says, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. It says, The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Here we have a threefold confirmation in order to assure us that if we truly repent of our sins, it will not go unnoticed by the Lord and it will not be in vain. Right? That's the lie we have to overcome. It is vain to serve the Lord. It is vain to live a godly life. It is vain to repent of our sins. That is the lie of the devil. This is the lie that the entire world believes. The world believes it is vain to repent of sin and it is vain to live a godly life. And they think it is wonderful, it is glorious to live in sin, to have our sin, to drink it to the full. But the Lord assures us here that true repentance does not go unnoticed by the Lord. He sees it. He writes it down. And in due time, God will exalt those who humble themselves through repentance. And we have this with absolute certainty, absolute confidence that if we repent of our sins, we can know 100% sure that God will take notice. He will hear us and he will grant to us his salvation. We will have the eternal glories of the kingdom of God. The Lord paid attention. The Lord heard them. The Lord had a book of remembrance written before him of those who feared his name and esteemed him. Simply one of these declarations would suffice, seeing that God never forgets anything, and God's word is certain and sure, that he will render to each one according to what he has done. 
But here, God says it in these three different ways, not because we have any doubt concerning the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. He does it for our benefit, for the sake of our faith, because of the weakness of our faith, to give to us great assurance that God is not blind to the deeds of repentance. It is not vain to serve God. It is not in vain to repent of our sins, because God is watching God sees it. He is a witness to these things, and he will receive us into his arms when we turn away from our sins. And that is far better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Isn't it better to be embraced by God, to be in communion and fellowship with the Lord, than to have communion with sinners, to be in fellowship with Satan, to be in fellowship with sin? Psalm 34 Psalm 34, Psalm 34, verse 15, says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned." God's eyes are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. God hears the cry of the repentant sinner. He hears them. He answers them. He forgives them, right? He comforts them in the day of trouble. God will deliver us from every affliction. He is near those who are brokenhearted over sin. Even though the righteous may be afflicted in many ways in this life, God will deliver the righteous man from all of his afflictions. We can be certain that our plight will not go unnoticed by the Lord. He sees all things. His eyes go to and fro over all of the earth. He knows and he sees these things and he will answer us in our time of need. He will deliver us. He will receive the repentant into his arms. Even if in this life, it feels like we're all alone. Even if it appears that the wicked are going to win the day. Even if it seems that the whole world is going to hell, which it is, and it all seems hopeless and lost, God sees all things. He knows exactly what is taking place. Not only does he know what's going on, he's the one who's ordained everything. He knows exactly what is going on on this earth. He knows those who are his, and in due time, he will exalt the humble and he will destroy the proud. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. His eyes are in every place. Well, isn't that what happened here? God's eyes were toward them. He heard them. He paid attention to them. He wrote down in his book of remembrance, right, what it is that they had done. And this is what God is doing at all times. Everything is being taken notice by God. He's paying attention to everything whether it's done in the open, whether it's done in the deep, dark corners, right? It doesn't matter. Everything is being written down in his book, either one way or the other, both for good and for evil. And there is a day of reckoning coming when God is going to open the books and God is going to expose and bring all of these things into light, whether they're good deeds or whether they are evil deeds, whether they were public deeds or whether they were secret deeds, everything will be exposed by the Lord. And those who have done the good will receive their reward. And those who have done the evil, they will receive their punishment on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. This is the portion of those who do evil. Eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. This is the portion for those who do good. Are these not strong incentives for us to reject evil and to pursue righteousness? When we know for certain that God will punish every evil deed and that God will reward every good deed? So why would we live a sinful life against the Lord seeing that such terrifying punishments await the wicked? And why would we not live a godly life seeing that there are such great rewards that await for the righteous? So we have ample reasons both, both ways, both for good and for evil, on both sides, to avoid evil and to pursue righteousness. And the only thing is lacking is fear of the Lord. It is only those who fear the Lord, only those who esteem his name, who believe that God will make good on his promises, that God will make good on his threats and curses. And this is the problem universal among men. People don't believe the word of God. They do not have faith. They do not believe that there is going to be a day of punishment. Or if there is a day of punishment, it's not going to be so bad that it's worth me missing out on the pleasures of sin. And they do not believe that the rewards for living a godly life are so great and good that it's actually worth putting in the effort to live a godly and a righteous life. For most people, the pleasures of sin are more valuable to them than the rewards of righteousness, and the pleasures of sin are better. They would rather have that than the punishments that are going to come upon the ungodly because they don't believe. They do not have faith in the word of God, in the eternal rewards for righteousness, and in the punishment for those who live in sin. And this is why it's only those who fear the Lord. It's only those who esteem his name, which are descriptions that can only be true of the righteous. Only true believers, right? Only those with true faith believe the warnings and promises of Scripture and take those things seriously. And this is why the man of faith is able to patiently wait for the reward of God. He doesn't receive praise. He's not living the Christian life to receive praise in this life. He's not serving God for present, immediate recognition and reward. For the righteous man, for the man of faith, it is enough for him to know that the Lord pays attention, that the Lord hears, and that the Lord writes all things in his book of remembrance, and that in due time, God will reward him according to what he has done. So he's not practicing his righteousness to be seen by others. He's not doing it for other men. He's doing it for the Lord. And he knows in due time, God will repay him. This is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here, When he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In some regards, it's impossible for us to not practice righteousness in front of other people. Right? When we meet together to worship God, are we not practicing righteousness? And are there other people here? The issue is, what is motivating a person to do those things? Is he doing it for the Lord, or is he doing it for other people? Right? If he's doing it for other people, then he won't do it in private. But if he's doing it for the Lord, he'll do it publicly, but he'll also do it privately. So beware of practicing it just before other people. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's their praise they received on earth. When people say, oh, he's, he prays such wonderful prayers. Oh, he's such a godly man. Did you hear the way that he prayed? Right? He's doing it for those reasons. Well, okay, that's your reward, but you're going to get nothing from God. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Right? That's all that matters for the man of faith, that God sees it, that God hears it. Right? And that in due time, God will reward it. So he doesn't need to receive praise from other people. He doesn't need to receive a reward in this life because he's not serving God to receive worldly glory and honor and praise. He's doing it for heavenly glory and heavenly honor. And this is the way that we should be. And this passage affirms to us, it assures us that whatever we do, God sees it. Right? God hears it. God pays attention. God is writing down these deeds, and those righteous deeds, the good deed of repentance, God will reward it on the day of judgment. Now, a couple of examples from Scripture that will further illustrate and clarify these truths. The first one, Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. An argument from the lesser to the greater. Esther chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Esther 6 verse 1 says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. This is all so great, right? When we read this at our home one night, the kids all started laughing out loud at this part because of the providence of God and how clearly it is illustrated that God will repay the evil for what they've done and how he did it right here in Haman's face, how all of this came about. So read this with your children. Okay, where are we at? Verse 6. So Haman came in and said to the king, What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead them on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, here we have a similar situation to the book of Remembrance, right? The king, Ahasuerus, and many kings during this time and in our own day as well, they have a book, they have a chronicle of significant events, significant things that happen within their kingdom. Here is called the book of memorable deeds, or would also be a book of remembrance, a chronicle of the things that have happened. And this night, when the king is unable to sleep, 
He, he's awakened this by the providence of God, and he has them come, read this book to me, tell me what has been taking place. So there is this ledger where these great deeds that are performed in his kingdom are recorded. And when he discovers this great deed performed by Mordecai, and the king finds out that Mordecai had not been properly rewarded, he had not been honored for the great deed, the great service that he had rendered to the king and to the kingdom, what does he do? He honors him. He knew that it was right and fitting that he be honored for doing this great service and this great deed for the king. And this is a Ahasuerus, who's not a believer, who is not a man of faith, who is a wicked man, who is a pagan king. He's not a just and righteous man. Also, he is merely a man. He is a finite man who will one day die, yet he knew that when someone in his kingdom served him faithfully, that it was proper and fitting for that man to be properly honored. And when it was brought to his attention that Mordecai had not been so honored, he rectified it immediately. And he bestowed great honor upon this man. Now, if a finite man with limited knowledge, limited understanding, if an unjust king knows that this is what ought to be done, then how much more will our God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is infinite, who knows all things, who sees all things, who keeps a record of all of the good deeds of those who serve him, how much more certain do we have it that God will reward us according to our labor? that he will bestow eternal glories and honor upon those who serve him with all of their heart. The fruits of repentance are seen by God. They are recorded in his book, and one day the deeds of repentance will be brought forward by God, and we will have our reward. And then the blasphemers of God, from verse 15, they will know... It is not vain to serve the Lord. Just as Haman found out that Mordecai was not worthy of death, he found out that God wanted to bestow honor on Mordecai. The king wanted to honor Mordecai. So also all men will know that it is not vain to serve the Lord. The repentant will be honored by God in the kingdom of Christ. Do we want that? Do we want metaphorically speaking, to be put on a horse with royal robes, to be led through the city, and for someone to say, thus the Lord will do for those who honor him, for those who serve him. Don't we want God to do that for us? This is what he promises. Isn't that what he's promising in the word of God? That if we will truly repent, this is what he will do for us. Not that we deserve it, Right? It's all a gift of God, it's all the grace of God, but it is the promise of God that he gives to those who serve him. So why don't we do this? We should do it. Okay, one last passage, 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. Another argument from the lesser to the greater. First Kings 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick your own blood? Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you, and I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. 
In any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Then verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but in his son's day, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, I take Ahab's repentance to be spurious, momentary, temporary repentance, not true repentance. And that because of what takes place in 1 Kings chapter 22. Because in the next chapter, he's back up to his old evil deeds and he's uh, oppressing and persecuting Micaiah the prophet by putting him in prison, feeding him meager rations, and God determines to put Ahab to death in chapter 22 and sends an evil spirit to put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets to deceive him so that God can go and put him to death, right? So because of that, then I take this to be temporary, spurious, momentary repentance. But notice here that when even Ahab humbled himself in this way, even though it was for a moment, even though it was temporary, God brought it to the attention of who? He brought it to the attention of Elijah. He says, have you noticed? Have you taken notice of what Ahab has done? Because I have taken notice to this and God gave to him a temporary blessing because he said, the destruction that I have determined to do to his house, I'm not going to do while he's alive. I'll do it in the day of his son. I'm going to put him to death first and he's not going to see the destruction and experience the anguish and the affliction of seeing his own house executed and completely extinguished and wiped off the face of the earth. Now, what is the point? If God will take notice in this way of someone who has momentary, temporary repentance, then how much more will God take notice of those who have true repentance? And if God will bestow a temporary blessing upon a momentary repentance, then how much more will God bestow spiritual and eternal blessings upon those who truly repent? This should excite us to repent. It should encourage us to repent, to see that God takes notice of these things and that he is going to reward us. And this is what we'll turn to next week. The blessings of repentance. To belong to the Lord. To have God say, that person is mine. To be his treasured possession. To have him spare us as a man spares his son. To have God separate us with the righteous and put us with them. Don't we want those blessings to come upon us? Then what must we do? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for your many and great promises that, Lord, you, you tell us so clearly that if a man will repent, Lord, if we will turn away from our sins, if we will humble ourselves and come before you, Lord, begging for your mercy, begging for your salvation, that, Lord, you will take us as your own, you will adopt us into your family. We will be your treasured possession. And you will spare us on the day of judgment as a man spares his son. Lord, these are the great promises that you lay out in your word that we have seen this morning. But Lord, we know that there are also threats and warnings. Lord, we know as well that if a man will not repent, Lord, you are wetting your sword. You are sharpening it even now that you are bending your bow and that you are going to shoot your fiery arrows at him and you will completely and utterly destroy him on the day of judgment. Lord, for us to act upon these words, these words both of promise and of cursing, 
Lord, we must have faith. We must believe. Lord, we must fear you. And so, Lord, we pray that the word that we have heard today would not fall upon worthless, useless soil. Lord, that it would not fall upon the pathway where Satan comes and takes it away. Lord, that it would not fall upon the rocky ground. Lord, where it has no root and it withers and dies because of the persecutions that arise on account of the word. Lord, we pray that it would not fall upon the thorny ground. Lord, where it springs up but is choked up by the cares of this world. Lord, by the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, we pray that the word that we have heard would fall upon good soil. Lord, that it would find a heart that is filled with your spirit. Lord, a heart that is full of faith. Lord, a heart that desires to do your will. And that, Lord, we would heed your warnings. Lord, that we would do what you call us to do and that we would, Lord, that we would order our life accordingly. So, Lord, we ask that you would grant to us today true faith and true repentance. Lord, that we might be heirs of eternal life, that we might obtain the blessings of salvation. Lord, we ask for you to do this. Give to us, Lord, these things. Lord, do it in our own life. Lord, do it in our family. Do it in our children. Lord, do it in those who are our friends. Lord, in anyone, Lord, that we come into contact with. Lord, we pray that you would do this great work of salvation and that you would use us, Lord, to spread your word abroad and that it would be found, Lord, to produce much good fruit. So, Lord, may this blessing be upon us and upon our families. And, Lord, may we have an assurance of knowing that we belong to you. Lord, thank you for your great and wonderful promises. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.